Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. Sometimes the treatment is worse than the PD. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me today on this podcast journey is my partner in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford. Hi. And reporter and contributor, Nikki Reitmeyer. Hello. Okay, already this season, we've heard a bit about dopamine agonists. Uh, you remember Gil Thielen in episode two about when it's time to fire your neurologist? Uh, he had me on a, uh, a an agonist called Primapexel, which was a disaster uh, in many ways, most particularly weight gain. Uh, I gained 50 pounds. Whoa. And over six over six months, same thing happened to a parky friend of mine uh, in Tampa. Same doctor, same drug, and he gained fifty pounds. And so I said, "Oop! I don't think this is going in the right direction." Wow, he gained fifty pounds. I know, and so did his friend, right? Uh, and oh. then in episode four, my neurologist, Doctor Squires, suggested the, the possibility of a dopamine agonist. Adding a little whiff of the dopamine agonists like primipexil sometimes helps with wearing off and also can help with apathy a little bit. It, um, what, what, are your, what are your general thoughts on agonists? Well, I don't use them a lot, certainly as monotherapy, but as, a, as an add-on in small doses, then they can be helpful for people. But I wouldn't do more than like... 0.25 of pexel three times a day, that'll probably be about as high as I would go, or, or sometimes I use probably reticotine a bit more, even. Um, some people think maybe there's a little less impulse control disorder with reticotine compared to the other two, but it's not that well established. Um, and there is some data from Japan that it might help with freezing a bit better than the other two. I remember this well, and I'm glad that you opted not to go down that road simply based on what I've heard from others about what can happen. We've talked to some folks on this podcast before who who know all too well the side effects of dopamine agonists. Yeah, impulsive gambling, compulsive shopping, hypersexuality, the list goes on. The last time it came up, we said we would do a whole episode on dopamine agonists. This is that episode. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited about this because this is an area of Parkinson's that I actually know quite a bit about. I am pursuing my psychology degree and in my Psych 301 course, which is brain dysfunction and recovery, I wrote my final paper on impulse control disorders, the strange side effects of dopamine agonists when used to treat Parkinson's disease. And... Fittingly enough, I also produced an audio documentary as well for that project, and we're going to listen to some of that here today. Are you kidding me? You've been holding out on us. <laughs> well, come on. You just you haven't asked the right questions. <laughs> <laughs> so with what you've heard from Gil and Dr. Squires, what has caught your ear so far? Well, uh, Primapexol or Mirapex, uh, Rotigotine, impulse control disorders, that's a big one. It makes you wonder why some of the dopamine agonists lead to impulse control disorders or ICDs and others, not so much. Uh, so so this is a big topic. Where do we begin, Nikki? Oh, the master of all things, <laughs> dopamine agonists. Well, I think we should probably start. <laughs> we should probably start right at square one. Just get the basic info out of the way. And we can understand then how dopamine works. Because after all, these dopamine agonists are trying to solve the lack of production of dopamine in people with Parkinson's. Let's say that you are not a neuroscientist who's like written books about dopamine and rats and stuff. Let's just say that you are totally unfamiliar with whatever this whole dopamine thing is. In that case, I'll try to explain. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, a type of chemical messenger in the brain. It plays a role in motor control, so the movement of our bodies. And it also plays a role in motivating us to seek reward. In a normal functioning brain, we could look at the basal ganglia to see how movement occurs. We'll start at the substantia nigra pars compacta, otherwise known for short, simply as the SNC. If you could look at it, you'd see that the substantia nigra pars compacta is really dark in color, and it gets this dark color from the large number of dopamine neurons that are there. Dopamine travels from the SNC along the nigrostriatal pathway to the striatum. Here, D1 and D2 receptors are activated. 
Keep in mind, D1 has a positive modulatory role, while D2 receptors have a negative modulatory role. So that means that D1 increases transmission in the direct pathway, or the pathway that tells our body to go, while D2 decreases transmission in the indirect pathway, or the pathway that tells our body to stop. As a result, we start moving. But in Parkinson's disease, problems occur right at step one. You've lost much of that dopamine in the SNC. So, as a result, dopamine does not go to the striatum, and it doesn't transmit to the D1 or D2 receptors. And the motor or premotor areas in the frontal cortex remain in their normal state, which is tonically inhibited, meaning you're not moving. I've never heard it so clearly explained. Right. I mean, it, it, you could actually visualize the dopamine going from the substantia Niagara through. and It's like, it's like the, the, the gasoline going into a car engine or something or, you know, you need the grease to get things moving. And it's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a little sciencey, but I hope the sound effects help. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I can tell you spent a lot of money on the sound effects. Uh, and I think it's important that we remember that it's not just about movement. Dopamine is a chemical messenger. And in addition to movement, dopamine impacts pleasure, attention, mood, and motivation. And that totally makes sense to me because of all the symptoms that I have. Mm-hmm. So in order to learn a little bit more about dopamine, we've dug up some really interesting facts about dopamine. And we're each going to get to share an item in a game that we're calling... Do, do you, you do know, you know dopamine? <laughs> we, can we try that one more time, guys? <laughs> yeah, we should do, probably do a three, two, one or something. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we'll put it on the outtake reel. Oh, no, this is going into the podcast. Okay. <laughs> In a game that we're calling... Do, do, do you, you know, know dopamine? dopamine? You're so cheesy. <laughs> okay, you start. <laughs> Do you know dopamine levels are altered when you get a massage? Oh. Research has shown that dopamine and serotonin increase during massages and cortisol, the stress hormone, decreases. That's cool. Interesting. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you know dopamine is not an endorphin? So endorphins trigger the release of dopamine, among other things, which is part of where the feel good comes from. But dopamine itself is a neurochemical which stays in your brain instead of floating around the body. Oh, cool. Do you know that technically speaking, dopamine doesn't actually make you happy? Dopamine's job is to work on your reward circuits by encouraging you to keep doing whatever you're doing. So dopamine doesn't tell you something as good is happening. It it tells you something good is about to happen. It's a drug Ah. of anticipation, not reward. So dopamine is either giddy excitement on a good day or hope to keep you going on the bad days. Interesting, interesting. And here's one more quick one. If you look close at the new podcast logo for When Life Gives You Parkinson's, you'll see the dopamine chemical structure is the gray pattern in the green background. It looks like like 25 little tadpoles swimming over the brain, but it's dopamine. Oh, interesting. I really like the new logo, too. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it is. Now that we know more than I guess we ever wanted to know about dopamine, (laughs) let's dive into dopamine agonists. So Alana Klar, MD, is a neurologist and movement disorder specialist at New Jersey Brain and Spine. The agonist is basically um, stimulating uh, the activation of the receptor and promoting the production of more endogenous um, levodopa in the brain. Whereas carbidopa levodopa is actually replacing the chemical that's missing in the brain. Okay, now I should note here that Dr. Klar is a movement disorder specialist for an amazing woman named Susan O'Rourke. Now, Susan was having shoulder issues and tightness, and and no one could really figure out what was wrong with her until she moved and she found a new physical therapist. So they sent me to a neurologist, nice guy, very nice guy. Um, and he said, no, you've got Parkinson's. Um, but he was an older gentleman. I would say he was more of a, what, generalist, you know, and he didn't specialize in movement disorders. And I did go to him, I guess, going on four years. Um, and it was okay. I mean, again, a good guy. 
he put me on a drug called Mirapex because evidently he thought I was on the older end of too young to have it. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you, were, you were right in the heart of the target. Yeah, well, you know, that this was his thought and that I shouldn't take cinnamon. I should take this Mirapex. And I did. But every time I went, he just kept upping the dose and upping the dose. And I couldn't sleep. Uh, my digestion was a mess. Uh, but I was tired all the time, but I couldn't sleep. Kind of ate my refrigerator, you know, got really obese. You know, and then I, I did happen to listen to your uh, podcast a couple times ago about firing your doctor. I didn't really <laughs> fire, but I knew it was time to change. Oh, thanks for listening to the podcast, Susan. Yeah, cool. And interesting that she said as well that she's had issues with compulsive eating. Oh, like Gil, he, she gained uh-huh. all that weight. Yeah. That's one reason why it's really so important to go to a movement disorder specialist instead of your GP or a general neurologist. Susan and Dr. Klar wholeheartedly agree. I don't think my symptoms were that horrible. You know, I don't think I presented, you know, really badly. Okay, ask me how I felt, but I don't know that I presented that badly. And he just kept upping the dose and, you know, the visit maybe lasted five or ten minutes on a good day. And he said, here, have take a half a pill more, <laughs> take another half a pill, you know, oh. that type of thing. Well, and again, he wasn't a bad guy and I didn't really fire him. I just stopped going. <laughs> <laughs> you just ghosted him. I yeah. just ghosted him. You know, and so it, it was so weird. I knew it was time to make a change. And I happened to see on television, believe it or not, an ad for Hackensack Meridian Healthcare and their movement disorder special, you know, group. And I said, well, that sounds like what I need. And I called up and I got referred to Dr. Clark. Now, I've never seen that ad since then. So it's just strange. It was like a kismet moment. Yeah, for sure. My first visit with Dr. Clark, goodness, it had to be more than an hour. And it was a very thorough exam. And we talked and, you know, I just knew I was in the right place. Oh, and I'm so glad that she found the right doctor. Well, and it seems like in this particular situation Uh with agonists, you would want somebody who you can trust and can talk to about these things. Yeah, I've got strong sexual impulses. You probably wouldn't tell uh, any kind of physician or clinician that they that you don't trust with that information or who you're afraid of being judged by. Yeah, so true. For sure. So true. When you see movement disorder specialists, you're seeing somebody who does this all day, every day. It's their bread and butter. And I think that they're going to understand the nuances and the artistry of treating um, a Parkinson's patient better than a general neurologist or a general practitioner. And that's, you know, by no means any offense to them. They, they do a very critical job as well. I mean, there are so many patients out there in the world and, and in many ways we need the help of the community and, and general practitioners to assess patients and say, I think this is what's going on. Let me triage you know, this is what I believe you have, or this is what I don't think you have. But, you know, once it's ultimately confirmed, once the disease process starts to evolve and things become more serious or more complicated, I think it's only to a patient's benefit to see movement specialists because the medications can start to get complicated, especially when you start to have a cocktail of multiple drugs, because you're balancing benefit and side effect, and then you have to consider whether different types of surgical intervention, whether it's a, a pump or deep brain stimulation or ultrasound for a unilateral tremor, you know, you have to make, make those considerations as well further down the road. So you want somebody who is up to date on the latest research and um, and is familiar with, with all the ins and outs, so to speak, of the different types of Parkinsonism and um, and how to best address management, whether it's medical or not. I wonder why some neurologists and MDSs turn first to agonists while others swear by the gold standard levodopa. I think it's fair to say that even though we all collectively get some of the same training, um, at the end of the day, the thought process and the general Um, culture of sort of how we prescribe medications and the algorithms that we use for prescribing medications, they change over time based on updated research and and new literature. And so the old mentality used to be that carbidopa levodopa or cinnamon should be used as an option of last resort um, because everybody was so fearful of developing dyskinesias, which Michael J. Fox uh, was famous for. Um, And the 
thinking was that, you know, agonists, dopamine agonists, that is, drugs like pramipexil or ropinirol, um, they should be prescribed first. Now we've come to realize that the longer patients are on that class of drug um, and the higher the dose is, um, the more uh, side effects can come from those medications. And certainly the higher the risk is uh, as you uh, ramp up the dose and, and the longer you are on those medications, as I said. Um, so when Susan came to me, she was indeed having some of those side effects. And I could tell that, you know, she wasn't medically optimized. And one of the first things that I did was start lowering her dose of the Pramipexil and um, getting her started on Carbidopa Levodopa. Um, for myself personally, when I see patients that are in their 50s or older, I, my personal preference is to start a patient on Carbidopa Levodopa. I don't I don't initially prescribe agonists, but but other doctors may um, decide differently, and that's fine. You know, again, we all have our own way of doing things. I think agonists can be a good medication, and they have their um, they have their utility certainly as a good adjunct and in lower doses. But I think the danger lies in using them exclusively, keeping them on board for a long time, and just ramping them up without any type of a cap to how high the dose can be pushed. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it does explain why people like Susan were prescribed agonists by well-intentioned doctors. Well, yeah. I mean, they just have old information because they're not studying, uh, you know, uh, Parkinson's disease. They're, they're just trying to learn a little bit about everything all the time, right? Uh, so Susan is now 70 years old, lives in New Jersey. She had deep brain stimulation surgery in the middle of this pandemic. Oh, wow. And she's currently not on agonists or levodopa. As we know, uh, that's half of the, the maintenance for Parkinson's. The other half uh, is not about the medicine. I started taking yoga like crazy, and I think that's done a lot to keep my mobility up. I mean, I'm like a crazy yoga. Well, I'm, I'm finally able to go back this week. Yay. Uh, I walk three miles a day. I lost 60 pounds. So I think part of the lesson here, too, is you, you just can't be a passenger. You got to drive. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's what I admire so much about Susan, because I think she just exemplifies the best of a Parkinson's patient. This is not something that has to define your life. This is something that you can grab by the horns and and I've already said this to her before. I don't know if this is allowed on a podcast, but she's made it her bitch, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I am so proud of her for that because I can't tell you how many times I have to tell patients, you've got to exercise. The American Academy of Neurology says you've got to do this at least two and a half hours a week. And, you know, you have to, the medicine only does half the job. You, you've got to be your own advocate and, and live a, a healthy life too. Um, you can't just, think that these yellow pills are going to miraculously change everything. And and Susan really took that to heart. And I mean, she's just completely done a 180. I'm so proud of her. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, be your own advocate. That's something that we really do here time and time again. And that's so great that Susan really embraced that mentality. Well, I just, you know, I just... <laughs> I just love Dr. Clar. You know, she, she's she, uh, she she her admiration of Susan and you know making mm. Parkinson's uh, her bitch. That was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you heard Susan talk about uh, eating her refrigerator and becoming obese, and that's a part of the impulse control disorder that can accompany dopamine agonists. Oh, and here's another one of your features. Impulse Control Disorder, or ICD for short. It's a psychiatric disorder that's basically defined by your lack of ability to resist a temptation, an impulse. The DSM-5 states that it's a problem with emotional or behavioral self-control. So just imagine this could be anything from problems with gambling to not being able to resist sexual urges to compulsive shopping or stealing, excessive eating. The list goes on and on. But maybe you're wondering, okay, what does this have to do with Parkinson's disease? 
Well, the development of an impulse control disorder is actually more common than you may think for people with Parkinson's. For example, take pathological gambling. That's been observed in a range of 3.5 to 6% of Parkinson's patients, compared to just 0.25 to 2% of the general population. Impulse control disorders are particularly common for people with Parkinson's in two categories. One, patients with young onset Parkinson's disease, or YOPD. And two, patients who are taking a dopamine agonist. To take a quick look at that first group, let's go all the way to Spain. There, Dr. Lydia Vela de Soho and her team found that nearly 60% of the YOPD participants in their study displayed impulse control behaviors. And of that group of people with YOPD who showed signs of impulse control behaviors, over 90% of them were taking a dopamine agonist. That actually segues nicely into the second group that I was talking about, the second category of people with Parkinson's who are at risk to develop an impulse control disorder. People who are taking a dopamine agonist. For this, we'll need to go to the UK. Hello. Hi, Vicky. It's Nikki. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Meet Vicky Dillon. Hi, I'm Vicky Dillon. I live in the northeast of England and have had Parkinson's for 16 years. Diagnosed in 2007, but symptoms since 2004 and have had some fun and games with drugs therapy on the way. Now, Vicky has Parkinson's disease, but she also thinks that she has or had an impulse control disorder. Can you tell me about when you were first diagnosed? If we go back a few years, when did you first find out that you had Parkinson's? Well, in 2004, I started having some weird and wonderful symptoms, which I was a nurse at the time, knew something was seriously wrong. Three years of going backwards and forwards, having various tests, eventually being referred to a neurologist who then didn't have a clue, thought I was a bit of a hypochondriac, I think. It took three years before they moved me on to the movement disorder lot, and it was Valentine's Day. I always say my friend got an engagement ring, I got Parkinson's. And they were going to discharge me again. And I just threw an absolute fit and said I wasn't leaving until somebody who knew what they were talking about came to see me. And in came a guy called Professor David Byrne. He asked me what was wrong. And I said, like, my body just wouldn't do what it wanted to do. I had a bit of a tremor, but nothing much. The main thing for me was I liked clubbing and I couldn't dance. I couldn't get any rhythm. And I was like, what the hell is happening to my legs? So... He watched me walk, watched, I had no arm swing, hold my arm like Napoleon. He got me to do a bit of writing. My writing was atrocious. I thought I either had MS or possibly a brain tumour. And and then I don't know what happened, but in my brain, I just suddenly thought, shit, he thinks I've got Parkinson's. And I asked him, thinking he was going to say, no, don't be silly. And he said, no, I do. And my world literally fell apart. I can imagine. I mean, getting that diagnosis, a million things must be running through your head. Well, I I knew basically it was a deficiency in dopamine, but I couldn't remember if it killed you. I couldn't remember if it meant you would be in a wheelchair pretty quick. And I had two young children at the time. I was only 35 then. But honestly, for the first eight weeks, all I wanted to do was jump under a train and, and not be a burden to anyone. But I don't stay down ever for very long. And I soon developed, um, I'm going to fight this, and you know, to the end. And that's what I've done ever since. Now, I'm sure that you got put on about a million and a half different types of medications, but specifically to address the dopamine deficiency, what Mm -hmm. medication did they put you on? In their wisdom, they decided to put me on this new therapy, dopamine agonist called Rapinerol. Good old bloody Rapinerol. And um, they whacked me on maximum dose. And this drug is so toxic. The vomiting and nausea it induced was just horrendous. But I, you know, stuck with it religiously. And I honestly, there was times, because I was still working full time, I just had to lie on the floor in the staff room because the whole room was spinning so badly. So once I got over the nausea bit, which I can still get nausea from it now because I'm still on it, um, but on a much decreased dose, Then suddenly, quite quickly, my behaviour changed. And all I can say is that drug has been likened to being on crack cocaine and ecstasy. And I was literally swinging off the chandeliers, so to speak. I bought a sports car, I 
booked holidays to the Dominican, to Mexico. I had my hair blow dried two, three times a week. I had my nails constantly done, my eyelashes constantly done. I was having a great time, didn't give a stuff about money um, because I had Parkinson's and I deserved to have fun. But um, the lid soon came off everything and, you know, it didn't take too long before I was in a bit of a mess. So to give me an idea of what a contrast this was like, could you describe to me what your personality was like or how you perceived yourself prior to being on these medications? Oh, I've always been a bit of a live wire. I've always been a bit of an exhibitionist, but this just magnified everything. So you don't change who you are. You just, the brakes come off, the inhibitions go. And it's like you've got a little devil on your shoulder saying, go on, go on. I've always been a bit of a joker as well, but I liked, I liked making people laugh. So I was suddenly party girl to the extreme and drinking heavily. Um, I used to go out maybe once a month with my girlfriends, have a couple of beers and that would be it. I was suddenly going out Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, sometimes Sundays as well, and drinking to oblivion, but doing stupid things like dancing on tables, really showing off. And that's what my partner said to me. He says, you turned into an attention-seeking show-off. And I was a pain in the bum, actually, but I made a lot of people laugh. And um, and actually, I thought I was wonderful. And the thing about Rapinerol is you feel invincible and you feel like the bee's knees, like I said. And things started happening to me. I got promoted at work, so I became a specialist. That was a massive jump. I was nominated and got to be an Olympic torchbearer. Media wanted to speak to me and I was thrown into this like mad world where my behaviour was not brilliant, but everybody kind of around me was encouraging it. Yeah, all of a sudden you become the life of the party and people take notice and they love it. Yeah, and there was a documentary made about me. Really? um, Yeah, called Sex, Lies and Parkinson's. To me now, when I watch it, it makes me cry. I'm sad because my children lost their mother for a good few years. I suddenly turned into this egocentric lunatic, really. Um, And all I was interested in was feeding that adrenaline and um, having fun. What kind of effect did it have on your relationships, whether it was with your partner, with your children, other people in your life? It broke down a lot of relationships. My mother was horrified at suddenly how, who had become my partner went through hell. It did a lot of damage, a lot of damage, and it hurt a lot of people, my behaviour. After being placed on Ropinerol, after developing what sounds like an impulse control disorder, yeah, how much, how much debt did you rack up? About £75,000. £75,000. Yeah which is a lot of money. The first time around, I think it was about 30, and I paid that off, and then I did it again and paid it off. But I begged I begged my GP and I begged my neurologist to help me and for some, I don't know, to do something. Um, there was no proper service in place to, for me to be counselled or talked to. They sent me to see a normal psychiatrist who said, well, you, you don't need to see us. And I was like, well, where, who's going to help me? But there was no help. There was no help, no support, basically. It was awful. I mean, when did you start to get the idea that you had an impulse control disorder? Were you, uh, did a doctor point it out to you at first? Or was it something that you started to think, wait a minute, I read about this and I think this might apply to me? I didn't really think about it. I just lived in this pink, fluffy cloud. I was having a great time. But it was my partner, it was people around me kind of saying, Vicky, you've really changed. And I was like, you know, I've got Parkinson's kind of thing. Of course I'm going to change. I'm, you know, living life while I can. And I wouldn't accept it at first. But then when I had to look at the cold facts and how much debt I'd accrued, and I, it did take a bit of time. It did take a few people to kind of say to me, Vicky, you've got to get a grip as you're going to lose absolutely everything forever. So she said that she lost 75,000 pounds sterling, equal to 100,000 US dollars, 130,000 in Canadian dollars. Ooh, I mean, that, and I've heard up to 250,000 pounds oh. that people have lost. Yikes. I mean, in gambling and, uh, you know, marriages have, have crumbled. I mean, you know, all I can think about is 
when we started this episode was the pleasure uh, seeking, the attention, the mood, the motivation, like all these things that the dopamine craves and that, that we're seeing it played out in real time with Vicky's issues. I mean, it's it's really unbelievable. Vicky was featured in a documentary called mm-hmm. Sex, Lies and Parkinson's. It aired on Channel 4 in the UK back in 2011. She briefly noted how hard it is to watch and how she feels badly for her kids. And I remember thinking that when I watched this, those were the folks who seemed the most affected by her behavior. Oh, yeah. So let's listen to some of the documentary. I think Harry's probably suffered more. If I haven't spent much time with him, he gets really angry with me. And he'll say things like, I wish you weren't my mother, which is horrible. Go on, you're off to go to Nana's for a couple of hours. No, because you'll be more in a couple of hours. No, I won't. You'll be like this at four o'clock. No, I won't. I promise. Harry, just come here. Harry, you're driving me mad. I'm not going any of them pieces. Just bloody get your shoes up. Well, where? Just take it somewhere else apart from there. Where? I don't know. Get your shoes on. Fine, but you're not taking this nun's eyes. You're gonna give me a bloody heart attack, you are. Oh, that really is heartbreaking. You can see why, as a mother, watching that back again, now that she's in a better place and looking at her behavior, it, oh, it must just be gut wrenching. She seemed so unaware of her behavior at the time. Too. So mm-hmm. she has to watch it back to really recognize what was happening. And that would just be heartbreaking. Well, it's like watching somebody else live your life. Yeah, so true. And most of the documentary was about her late nights, partying, and how that impacted the relationship with her husband, Ken. The drugs, the evil little feckers, basically, they really mess with your head. Yeah, the side effects are horrendous. They change you from one person to somebody completely different. It works on the pleasure-seeking part of your brain. I was suddenly wanting to be party girl all the time. The sex drive thing is ridiculous. Constantly badgering Ken for um, sex, which drove him absolutely mad. He would be frightened to come anywhere near me. My knicker elastic is probably not very strong anymore. My sister said it's like you've got the confidence of somebody who's high on coke. Ugh, it's horrible what this drug is doing. Uh, but what, can I just say, you know, I, and I don't mean to make light of anything, but I do love the British turn of the phrase, my knicker elastic is probably not very strong anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that too. <laughs> so in the documentary, Vicky and Ken fight a lot. And not just about her partying, but she was shopping uncontrollably and hiding it from Ken, hence the 75,000 pounds of debt. She was sexually charged by the agonists. And as a partner in Parkinson's, this was a frightening part of what I saw. It's really scary to imagine what Ken experienced during that time. I've never got any money left at the end of the month. Never. I've never got any at the start. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly, but you still managed to buy new clothes. Well, I don't know, I'm just saying. I have it's no, whole, idea. It's I have whole, no whole, idea how overdrawn I am. Well, I, 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 you'll be thousands. Probably. Probably, I don't know. Once the card stops working in the shop, then I'll worry. We have still got to manage our finances. You don't know what's a around lot, the corner. A lot. <sighs> what the hell do you need an iPad for? I also bloody do need them for work. Shut up. You do not need them for work. For what you do. You just said that. I don't need one. There's plenty of things I don't need. We're going to have a Barney, I can feel it. No, we're not. Yeah, we are because you're being sarcastic and horrible. You You don't need to do a Cassie motorbike. You could have a bloody push bike. Or a moped. It's the same. No, I don't need one. We have lots of things. Try and remember that then. Today is the first time we spoke properly for three days. Don't lie. It is. Isn't it? Spit it out, Ken. I'm just saying since I carry on with you. Yeah, what do you call it? Crush. (laughs) For some strange reason, I had an old phone that Vicky had used a long time ago when hers wasn't working properly. And I put my SIM card in it. I wanted something from it, a number or something, I put my SIM card in it. And I suddenly found all these, well, four messages, <clears throat> which 
which I, to be honest, I didn't like because of the, what, what was in them. It made us very suspicious. So I asked her what they were all about. And at first she denied it all and just said she couldn't remember and all this and clean and told us what, what the hell's going on, you know. It's, and she said she found this guy, you know, a good friend, good to talk to, good to listen to him, and liked him, had a, had a crush on him. And, and I was really upset, angry, and gutted at the same time, to be honest. You know, you think something's a, just call it a day. Wow, that is so, so, it, it's crazy. It's heartbreaking. It's, oh my goodness. Yeah, you kind of want to cry when listening to that, right? Because you, you, it's somebody's marriage and life and it's like, oh my God. Yeah. And, it's, and you can tie it back to dopamine agonists. Yeah, it, it just destroyed her marriage in every possible way. Yeah, I really feel for Ken in this. He's already facing, like so many other care partners, he's facing losing his partner to some extent to the disease. And now he's faced with the agonists and all that comes with that. He's faced with a different, even more jarring kind of loss. Not to mention the stigmas and embarrassment and all the things that are still attached to all the behaviors that Vicky was was going through. I mean, that's that's it compounds the care partner experience and the family member experience even more in addition to the person who's experienced the agonists and perhaps unaware of their behavior and, un and unable to control it. It's just, it sounds like more than anyone who's already dealing with a chronic disease should have to face. Right. Yeah. Oh. That's a great point. It's really interesting to hear it from your perspective as well as a, as a partner in this, how you can relate to, you know, what Ken might've been experiencing when it comes to Ken and Vicky. And I'm, I'm almost afraid to ask, but are they still together? At the end of the documentary, they promised to give it a go. It doesn't matter what happens with Vicky. It doesn't matter you know, how mobile she is, how this disability affects her. I'll be there, do you know what I mean? I would never, I would never run. I would never run away from her because of that. I will be there through thick and thin. I am lucky to have Ken because and I do love him and I know he loves me, even though we have like mega scraps. I think we're quite, um, we're each other's soulmate. He's struggled a bit the last couple of years and I haven't been very kind to him at times. Or very understanding. I've been too wrapped up in myself. Um, and I am going to make an effort to try and change that. Yeah. I know I'm going to get worse. Um, and I'm not really relishing that. I know I'm a lot worse than I probably was when I first met you. But I probably don't look worse because I'm on Levodopa. When I think about it, the whole of my 30s were horrible. So put it away, it's gone. Don't let it linger, move on. Now I can be fun, fabulous, frivolous, flirty, fortunate and faulty and flabby. <laughs> wow, he's, he's such a good, uh, such a good husband. You know, I imagine that not everyone who finds themselves acting this way because of the dopamine agonist that they're on is lucky enough to have a partner like Ken. Yeah. Very patient and understanding, especially if you watch the documentary and you see her behaviors with other men and things like that. Like he has to really understand that this is something that she's going through and that she's experiencing the side effects and also processing what's happening to her and her brain's just not working the way that it normally would and really be super patient and empathetic about that. that. That's a whole different level of commitment and marriage to have patience with that behavior. Yeah. And, you know, watching this documentary and, you know, hearing about her story, I wholeheartedly have so much sympathy for Vicky because I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to behave in a certain way and then come to this realization that everything you were doing was hurting so many people in your life and, and carrying around that guilt with you and knowing what you did to such a good guy like Ken or what you did to your children. It, the whole story is just, oh, wow. Yeah. And I have another update. Oh, okay. Uh, I rang Vicky for this podcast. I asked her after the documentary aired what happened and she said life got worse. <gasps> she moved out of the family home. Her mom died. Oh, and it all came back to bite me in the bum. 
well, I just, I just didn't. I remember on the documentary, there's a part where Ken, my partner, says to me, um, how much have you spent or something? And I said, I don't know. I don't check the bank balance. I'm, I'm, I'm worrying when the bank says no, and the bank did say no. And then when the documentary kind of was aired and it was shocking to a lot of people and then the media started writing stories about me being a nymphomaniac, which was ridiculous. Um, and then my, it affected my work, my career, and I ended up being stubborn and saying, I'm not working anymore with these people who I can't trust. I lost everything. Um, and it took that for me to realise, Christ, Vicky, you've got to do something here. You, you, you're in this alone, really, basically. And nobody's going to get you out of this apart from yourself. So I started to, to, uh, decreasing my dose then. But it's taken years. It's taken about four attempts to come off it totally. Wow. So so wait a second here, Larry. So she said that she started to go off the agonists after the documentary aired, and it took four tries before she was actually able to get off them altogether? Yeah, that's right. Four tries over nine wow. years. And she said going from like 12 pills to eight pills was the hardest section of that. She's now two weeks out without any agonists, and she's earned it. I didn't have faith in myself or my body. I didn't trust myself enough. And nobody was there to help me withdraw. They just said, you've got to do it slowly in case you get into doors and, you know, withdrawal syndrome or whatever. Um, and the, the, my body reacted again. So my blood pressure was affected. My heart rate was affected. I mean, I've had terrible issues with my heart rate um, with agonists. And I, I've, I've kind of narrowed it down to being a pin roll where my heart rate would fly up to about 188. A blue episode, yeah. I've got it. I've got it on my phone. I can show you the graph. And then there's this, the distinct mark where I've stopped my agonist completely, and my heart rate's like down to you know 80s, 90s. But it was going like the clappers, not all the time at 188, but anything slightly walking, doing zumba, anything, and I would be like, oh, just be my heart would just go like the clappers, and it was terrifying. People were putting it down to me having panic attacks, but it was not. It was a physiological reaction to the drug. But apparently, I've been told that it's more toxic than chemo. I don't know if that's true, but I've been on that for a long time, and I think your body kind of tells you when it's had enough. In the last episode, when we were talking about some of the horror stories of agonists, uh, Dave Andrews, who lives south of London, reached out through Facebook to say, whoa, 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 hey, wait a second, guys, I'm on agonists and they work for me. Um, I'm just on um, Mirapexin, so one tablet a day of dopamine agonist, which um, quite a light load, 1, 1.05 milligrams, which I started off on the on the light on the lowest, which was 0.26, um, and I've moved up over, yeah, seven or eight months to 1.05. And what does the uh, agonist do for you? Um, it improves my fine motor skills. So I was simple, you know, silly things like um, putting a cardigan on where I had to put my left arm behind my back, or taking a towel behind me after getting out of the shower in the morning to dry my back. Those, those sort of things were starting to become difficult and, um, and it's, it's helped with that. Oh, good. Good. Uh, have you, if and you've been on it since the beginning of this year, so you've been on it for, I guess it'd be just over 10 months. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I think I actually went on in sort of early March. So probably oh. eight months. And you've not noticed any side effects. No, not so far. Touch wood. When they suggested you go on agonist, did you uh, were you aware of the possible side effects? Yeah, I'd seen the side effects, and having been medication free for the first couple of years, um, for some I, I saw it as a sort of more gentle way of moving on to medication than going on to levodopa. And what was I your fear? Of, what, what what's your fear of levodopa? Uh, the the dyskinesia. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my fear, and. Having always res spent my whole life resisting medication, this seemed like a sort of uh, more gentle way onto it. But I guess levodopa will be required at some point, but that will be the next step. When you were um, offered the agonist, did you discuss it with your wife ahead of time? Yes. And what was that conversation like? I just said, look out for these kind of weird things that might happen. And what did she say? Uh, she was quite relaxed about it. She said, yeah, 
I can't I can't imagine that you'll uh, that you'll go in that direction, but I'll let you know if you do. Oh, good. When you hear the stories, because you contacted us and you're like, hey, wait a second, you're, you're telling the negative side of the agonist story, but they're, you know, it's working for me. Um, yeah. Do you hear that a lot? Do you feel like you have to defend the agonist? Um, no, not really. I guess in the sort of Parkinson's community over here, people are a little bit wary of it and you hear some horror stories. And I spoke to a couple of people that said you you might not want to go down that route because it's led to some pretty disastrous things happening to me. Um, so I guess it was a case of being being aware of the risks as opposed to not giving it a go. Right. And I think the way my neurologist, well, not that he had to sell it to me, but when I took the decision to go on to medication, he said, do you, do you want the, the silver standard or the gold standard? <laughs> So the gold standard being levodopa and the silver standard being the agonist. And I figured, well, I can move up from silver to gold, whereas moving down from gold to silver doesn't seem such a way to do it. So, so, so yes, that's, that's Dave's story. And for the last eight months, he's been on do- dopamine agonists. They're working fine. Uh, and it, it works for Dave and, and thousands, thousands of other people. I mean, it's not everybody doesn't get the uh, impulse control uh, disorder. Uh, but he, here is some advice from Vicki Dillon. If your movement disorder specialist or your neurologist says, hey, what do you think about going on an agonist? <laughs> Did you like my impersonation of an MDS? Firstly, you have to look at what drugs you're on and what benefits you get from them. And do you get any benefits or are we just pill popping for the sake of pill popping because that's all medical doctors know what to do is to prescribe us something challenge them challenge your doctors and t- ask them what the alternatives are and do they know what the side effects are and don't just take a drug because somebody prescribes it for you we trust far too easily and i don't know the way we treat medical professionals um, for neurological diseases needs to change they need to learn more really actively about what parkinson's is and how we're affected just writing a prescription does not do as many favors I mean, I think we were all frightened of going on to levodopa. We were all made to be dopophobic. But it's the way you prescribed um, dopamine. It's not a bad drug. It's a brilliant drug. But you need to make sure that the person who's taking it knows that they can't eat certain foods with it, that they need to have their stomach acidity right, so drink it with lemon juice or orange juice to help you kick in. Really great to hear two stories in this as well from a fellow who has taken dopamine agonists and hasn't had any problems with them and someone who has a more cautionary tale. Well, and from Vicky, it was a really nice reminder to advocate for yourself, mm-hmm. just like Susan. And to, I remember there was a, a moment in the documentary where she's walking away from her latest appointment and she's so frustrated because she didn't feel like she was getting what she needed, that the doctor had any solutions for her, that she was getting any of the support that she required. And that's where this wisdom is coming from, because she really had to take the bull by the horns and say, I'm going to be in charge of my own wellness and figure this out on my own. And traditional medicine can't always offer you the solutions that you're looking for. She had to look elsewhere and she did. Yeah. So that's wise advice. Mm-hmm. Learned the hard way. Yeah. Lots of lessons learned here. I mean, you, we, we learned that you can make Parkinson's your bitch. Uh, <laughs> we, we learned that agonists are no joke and not everyone is ready for the raw truth that some people with Parkinson's suffer in you know various ways. You know, we, we each are going through our own journey and, you know, it's, uh, it's not easy to hear or see. I'm really curious to hear more about the care partner experience with this. And our intention was to include that in this episode. We used our contacts. We used social media. We put a call out to the world to find a care partner who is willing to talk to us honestly, even anonymously, about their experiences with this. There's no shortage of folks who have a story like this, like Ken's, to share with us. But the stigma and the embarrassment and the guilt and all the emotions that you can imagine that go along with this are still so strong attached to this that we couldn't find a care partner who was willing to come forward. 
So the search continues. Oh. And in the next episode that we do about agonists, I really hope that we have a care partner who can speak to us honestly about this. Like I said, there are a lot of people experiencing this, and this must be a very lonely journey. So if anyone is willing to step forward and share a part of their story and they're willing to be vulnerable with me and chat with me about that, even anonymously, we can pitch your voice and and make it truly anonymous if you prefer. I know that there are people out there who will benefit from that story. I will certainly benefit from that story. And then there are other people who are experiencing something similar who really need to hear your story. So I encourage you to come out and we will treat you with kid gloves and as gently as we as, as we can with just the intention of of hearing your story and having you share it with the folks who need to hear it. Mm-hmm. And especially when at the end of the day, the goal really is to remove the stigma associated with with going through this this really really difficult difficult journey that you said so perfectly must feel so lonely and care partners we're talking a lot about it in the care partner community right now of destigmatizing and normalizing a lot of these more extreme experiences that aren't really extreme experiences that all of the the strong emotions and um sometimes taboo or really uncomfortable emotions like guilt or um, not wanting to spend time with your partner because it's difficult today and you know all of the all of the things that are um, that people don't really want to talk about because they don't admit they feel it meanwhile we're all feeling something like it right and so we can support each other through that and this is a perfect example of that if somebody if somebody or more than one somebodys are willing to come forward and help to normalize this experience that is not so uncommon we're finding then that ben- we all benefit from that and there's, there's a lot of the other angles that we could uh, talk about. I mean, is there a tendency for people who are already inclined to have a, a sort of an addictive behavior uh, if they go on an agonist? Are they more inclined for it to get worse? That's one thing we could explore. Mm-hmm. I'd be super curious to hear more about that. And and what happens if you've had deep brain stimulation? Do agonists impact you differently? Well, that's a good one. I, I, I'm actually speaking to a neurologist next week about all this as well. So if anybody else has an angle or a question that they they would like answered, we're happy to do some homework for you. Uh, so just email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca, or you can uh, reach out through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take it offline and we'll, we'll chat with you. And that's the best way for any care partners who want to speak with me about their experiences with the person with Parkinson's on agonists, uh, parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Yeah, and you could also leave uh, other ideas for future episodes because, you know, you know you, you, you're curious about things too. So uh, let us know. Hey, well, that was really interesting, guys. Uh, I guess it's, it's that time at the end of most episodes. Rebecca and Larry check in with each other to see how they're doing and what they may have learned from that episode. And it's that time again. The, the planet's trying to tell us to slow down. And then it's always like it's the same time of year that it feels really natural to slow down and go dark and stay inside a little bit. And we've got COVID, which encourages that as well. At the same time, then everything still kind of feels like it's speeding up because of the holidays. Hopefully this will be a slower holiday season, simpler because you won't, people hopefully won't be traveling so much, and well, we won't be. We won't. We won't be for sure. And uh, I'm not decorating my office because no one's going to see it. Right. So there's <laughs> one thing I can't do. I can just knock off the list. Uh, but I do miss people. I miss hugging people. Yeah, I just i I do miss the when I see people. I'm used to just kind of hugging them and being able to, you know, tousle the hair of our friends kids and and all of that and it does feel it's starting to feel more normal to not get close to people and not touch them and not hug them but i'm noticing that and it's not happy well it's a new boundary right right so like we all have these new boundaries now and like there's gonna be a lot of people that are not gonna go back to the way things were there's a lot of people that really love that they're not being touched anymore right <laughs> like 
Oh, good. That person's not going to hug me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I think masks are going to, you know, with flu seasons and stuff, I think people are going to be more eager to wear masks. Yes, because it has proven very effective, you know, but it's a boundary and it's being okay with even if you're interacting with someone and they don't have a mask on and it seems like they think it's weird that you might have a mask on in that particular situation, holding your boundary and saying, but this is what I need to feel comfortable. Well, the grocery store is like the microcosm of the issue because there's people that aren't wearing their masks properly or tr trying not to wear a mask and then they make them wear a mask and then they get upset and, and then they're standing in line and they're like, I'm like... Dude, it's six feet, not six inches. Like, get off my ass. Right. And over time, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with with communicating whatever my boundary is in that situation. If, somebody, if I feel like someone's not either considering it or blatantly crossing it, even though it's been established for, the, for within that store or something. I am so much more okay with some of those boundaries, social boundaries, now than I was before a global pandemic. Well, sure. And I'm, I'm more eager to reach out to the neighbor and say, here's our rules. Or maybe we yeah. wouldn't have done that before. Um, I, and and if, I, if there's enough neighbors who will think that we are too strict and, and the equal number of neighbors who think we're too loose, right. we're probably just right. Right, because that does seem the case. Yeah. You interact with this person and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you're walking out your front door. And then you see these other, and then there are other people and they're like, so you're going to come to our house, right? And most people we're finding are okay with our boundaries, but you do get the odd judgment or weird right. glances, especially when it comes to children. <laughs> right? And what are your children's boundaries? And everybody has very, whether they have children or not, everybody has very strong opinions <laughs> about who How you should be raising your child is in the bubble, <laughs> right? And who is not? Parkinson's or not, the boundaries are key to maintaining your health and balance. And there are a lot of folks in the Parkinson's community that are like, "Oh yeah, boundaries." I already learned that lesson. <laughs> Parkinson's was a big part of that lesson for me as well, and being able to communicate with others what your needs are and and holding really good, healthy boundaries and figuring out what that means to you is just part of having the, the disease in your life, I believe. And then and then there's a global pandemic and it just really nails it home, at least for our family. Well, and I think that a lot of people with Parkinson's that I've talked to are like, yep, now the world's getting a taste of what, a little bit of taste of what it's like to have Parkinson's because you're a little bit depressed, you're a little bit of anxiety, you have a little bit of anxiety, you feel trapped, you feel like you can't Limited. do everything, mm -hmm. you, you have plans that you've got to cancel, you can't, you know, like things happen, right? And so it's like, yeah, well, it's, we're, we're a little bit more prepared for this, aren't we? Uncertainty. <laughs> day to day, right? <laughs> Just take it day by day. That's all you can do. Yeah. I love you. I love you too. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez and sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's, you're not alone. Parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. The Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's Podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford. Available on Apple Podcasts and at michaeljfox.org. The World Parkinson Congress 2022 in Barcelona, Spain. Go to wpc2022.org for details on special virtual events that you can participate in now. And, of course... Drum roll, please. PD Avengers, Woo! ready to help end Parkinson's. You can join now at pdavengers.com. Yeah, don't put it off. Go there right now, pdavengers.com and sign up. And thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or CastBox. And then it just automatically shows up every week or every, every other week when we record. And uh, while you're there... Uh, go ahead and give the show a 10-star rating. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> give it five stars and then go back under another account and give it another five stars. <laughs> I think that'd be cool. Is that voting fraud? <laughs> Maybe. 
Uh, and feel free to comment too. We, we always love to hear your feedback. And of course, you can engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Oh, and I know some of you have email lists or you're on Facebook groups. You have Twitter. You have your own blog. Uh, Be sure to share a link to this podcast with your friends uh, because I I think that's really important. And if you you have a blog and you want to interview Nikki and Rebecca and I for your blog, we're happy to do that too. Yeah, absolutely. And most importantly, keep positive. Keep exercising. (laughs) (laughs) And keep listening. We'll talk to you next. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.